Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the outlook for inflation and interest rates, with the UK facing skyrocketing gas prices and an endemic labour shortage, as well as what a US default could mean for UK investors. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to this week's Word on the Street. And well, we've been a bit cheap this week. It's just two of us. So I hope that's okay for our listeners. Will feels a bit odd, but hi, how are you? It's just us. I'm yeah, nowhere to hide for me, Nikki. Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> really well, thank you. So There are a lot of things to talk about. Let me start with, we've got gas prices, we've got petrol station queues, we've got uh, commodity price worries, inflation, market volatility, the fear of US default, and all sorts of things. And and on on a perhaps a lighter note, potentially miracle COVID pills. So where are we going to start? Well, let's just stay away from the party conference season. I want to keep my job for a little bit longer. And we'll leave that up to Olivia. She can cover that when she comes in. Uh, And I will try and cover some of the rest anyway. But yeah, like you say, there's loads going on at the moment. And yeah, inflation, stagflation, the whole debate and markets have really woken up. Yeah, although I guess there's there's a political overlay always as, as well, right? Because, you know, when it comes to the economy, markets, government has some impact there. So let's talk a bit about the energy prices. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think first things first, let's separate the UK petrol station saga from the surging gas prices. As you know, they're not related. <laughs> and indeed, of course, let's not mention Brexit's influence, perhaps on the former. Well, I mean, there is, yeah, <laughs> we'll try not to. I mean, I, I think a shortage of haulage drivers is more of a global story in truth. But there are plausible shouts that Brexit has worsened the situation in the UK a little bit in the short run. Uh, nonetheless, I think this best, this is probably best seen as part of the, the petrol station saga is best seen as the kind of wider logistical constraints and blockages the world is suffering from at the moment. The p- pandemic is, is primarily to blame, uh, with Brexit adding a little bit of garnish, let's say. But actually, we're going to cover uh, supply chains, Brexit and the rest in a few weeks time. Well, it's not just you and me, but we've got James Binns, uh, an in-house supply chains specialist. That may be understating it a bit, actually, because he's global head of supply chains and working capital. Anyway, that will be well worth waiting for, as how these supply chain snarl-ups evolve in the coming quarters is going to be massive in terms of understanding the outlook for inflation, therefore interest rates, and what mortgages are going to cost us in the UK and and beyond. Well, we're going to have high expectations of James, (laughs) because firstly, to understand what his role title means, (laughs) (laughs) and secondly, to unpick what on earth has been going on here. So you mentioned earlier on gas prices. There's a bit of a role that China plays here, isn't there? So so can you just explain that a bit more? I know you mentioned it last week, but, but can you just expand a bit on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so basically somewhere in the causal chain lies a drought in China, um, which reduced kind of hydro capacity. Coal was unable, you know, which is obviously a huge source of energy in, in China still. Coal was unable to fully play, uh, plug the gap in part because China's incredibly aggressive attempts to move on from it as a power source. Now, other energy sources such as natural gas have been used in their stead. And this gigantic extra demand spilling over onto other, onto natural gas has squeezed 
uh, natural gas prices. I mean, dramatically higher in part some part of some parts this week. Now, as you know, the basics of supply and demand are that high prices are meant to stimulate uh, suppliers to want to supply more of that good. Um, with the extra demand satisfied this way. Now, it should be more profitable for suppliers to do it. However, the supply response from natural gas obviously takes time. It takes you know five years to build a natural gas terminal, for example. Now, in Europe's case, you know, Russia comes in here. There's an important, Russia has an important role here. It has the extra supply. But at some point this week, there were some mutters of a quid pro quo in the form of faster approval of this Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Things actually seem to be settling down a little bit um, on that point. But I think from our perspective, the wider point here is that transitioning away from fossil fuels is, you know, necessary work for the global economy, of course. But it is going to be, you know, expensive in parts. There will be supply supply crunches. Renewable power can be intermittent, as we know, reliant on sun, wind, so on. So solving the storage problem will be key here. But until then, we're still going to have to use a lot of fossil fuels to sate our energy demands to get there. Now, the point here is that investment in fossil fuel capacity growth is obviously and understandably not popular. And that mix of underinvestment with combined with strong demand has resulted in surging commodity prices, not just in fossil fuels, but some associated areas. So smelting aluminium is a very energy intensive process. For instance, China supplies 60% of the world's needs here. So prices there have been surging too. Now, one interesting aside is that actually the pandemic economy, it may use less airplane fuel and are going on less holidays and less business trips for sure. But it is overall more energy intensive, more working from home combined with a shift away from away from services consumption to more goods consumption. That's part of it. So it's a very complicated picture. Okay, and you mentioned there, obviously, we've seen higher costs with energy, but where perhaps some of our listeners might be in more diversified portfolios, certainly our own multi-asset funds and, and portfolios have been somewhat insulated from this because, of course, there's a certain offset in, in the performance of their investments with the addition of diversified commodities in there, which which clearly include gas and oil. So would you say that we've seen that being insulated or are we seeing knock-on impacts to, to the value of, of funds and portfolios? Yeah, I mean, I think this is an area actually where we're a bit different from, you know, one of the areas where we're a bit different from some of the competition in truth. Certainly those those of our competition who face off to individual investors and actually diversified commodities or exposure to diversified commodities within that one-stop shop of diversified at global exposure, that's more common amongst um, those investment teams serving institutional investors. Now, on the flip side, many private banks and kind of wealth managers tend to use their the commodity allocation, if they have one, to invest in gold alone, for instance, in a way because gold can, a little bit unreliably, behave like government bonds. It is treated, in a sense, as a, a bit of extra defence. There's no rights and wrongs here, to be clear. However, in a way, focusing on protecting against short-term pullbacks is not really what we're trying to do, not primarily anyway. With the obvious exception of the St. Petersburg Stock Exchange in 1917, which fell to zero and never recovered. <laughs> Got a uh, bit of history in there. Yeah, always. <laughs> but all pullbacks have been relatively rapidly retraced. I mean, uh, you know, last year is quite a good example of a really extreme pullback, rapidly retraced. In fact, there's now quite a bit of evidence 
that investors focusing on protecting these intermittent stock market shocks, you know, overly focusing on these intermittent stock market shocks can be very costly to your longer term returns. You can have too much defense in a sense, which remember the long term returns bit, that's the really important bit. How likely am I to achieve my long term investment goals? And that's really what we're trying to work towards. So diversified commodity exposure, which includes precious metals uh, alongside gas, oil and various others, it's actually about providing more robust long-term returns profile, that all-weather investment portfolio or fund. Now, this year, that has benefited portfolios greatly so far. And I guess you could argue that the mix of underinvestment and likely robust demand we just talked about, that may keep commodity prices eleva- elevated for a while. Yeah, we shall see. But the reason to hold them, it's a bit more complicated than that. And I don't really want to get too too wonky about it, but it really derives from something called storage theory. Like I say, I won't go into it, but... As with all the assets in our toolkit, there has to be both evidence of a positive return in the past and a reason or an economic intuition behind why there would be one in the future, obviously. So most assets and capital markets factors offer varying degrees of return as a compensation of some sort of inheritance errant risk or other. And diversified commodities are no different. Uh, and the shape of the expected returns can look quite different from the other assets in that toolkit equities and bonds, adding a little bit of extra robustness that we're looking for. So, you know, this is a nice example, but actually more broadly, this is an important part of, you know, how we invest. Got it. So thinking a bit about inflation, the bond market seems to have really woken up to this last couple of weeks. We've seen prices falling and therefore yields rising. So is that also part of this story? Yeah, I mean, actually, that fits in with the relationship between risk and return just mentioned. There's there's a little bit, there's a bit more uncertainty about the outlook for inflation over the last few weeks. And the energy price story is part of that. And as a result, markets have moved to install a little bit of extra compensation in long into long bonds to attract would-be investors, lenders, uh, in the face of that extra uncertainty and risk. It's, it's pretty logical in a way. And that has had a knock-on effect across capital markets. So in stocks, higher interest rates are seen by some to diminish the attraction of some sectors uh, and factors such as tech and burnish the appeal of others like banks. So this is, you know, as we always say, you know, the bond market is really the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. You can't, you can't ignore it. And so how much is noise then? And, and how much is the signal. So to what extent should we get involved in the debate as as investors? Because, you know, you've been saying that the outlook for inflation and interest rates will likely remain quite uncertain for, for a while. So what should we do? Yeah, Nikki, that's that's not changed. I have to admit, I mean, for the moment, I, I do think, you know, or we do think, I mean, we're certainly not alone in this, you know, the central bankers and many kind of professional forecasters are in the same boat, that while there are a broader range of potential inflation outcomes, a reversion to central bank targets for inflation over the course of the next year or so should be your baseline expectation, you know, back to inflation being more like the moths slowly eating my jumpers uh, <laughs> with regards to what they do to your savings rather than anything more predatory in terms of, uh, you know, taking big chunks out of your purchasing power as it currently is right now. However, like I say, there is undoubtedly a wide range of possible outcomes around that baseline. And the longer this kind of 
transitory in inverted commas uh, hump in price pressures goes on for, the more it will seep into things like wage negotiations and such like and, and start forming our expectations, which is really the important bit. So that's what we've got to watch very carefully. But more broadly, though, this is another reminder, if we needed one, that the next decade could really look very, very different to the last one or two. Not just trends in inflation and interest rates, which by themselves are very important in dictating the mix of winners and losers at both the asset class level you know, and within what stocks win, what sectors. But you are also seeing the international conversation on a global minimum tax rate move along, which could level up the playing field between mega cap and smaller companies. Competition policy is changing, not just in China. The so-called tech lash is everywhere. And this is why we spend so much time, the teams that we're lucky enough to work with, you and I, you know, they spend so much time and energy looking beyond the last decade for information on how to organize our multi-asset class funds and portfolios. This is why we don't just invest in one style or factor when coloring in those sort of carefully designed asset allocation frameworks. And that's clear, but I guess playing devil's advocate somewhat. I read an interesting piece a while back talking about superstar investors. And of course, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has heard of Warren Buffett, of George Soros. Uh, perhaps fewer may have heard of Bill Gross, but he definitely comes under the superstar investor category. And, and one of the points made about their returns was that they backed an area of the market, you know, whether that's cheap quality stocks or, or certain styles within fixed income for, for Bill Gross. And they stuck to it through thick and thin, you know, had a very consistent approach. Why wouldn't an individual want to try to copy that way of investing? These guys are superstars for a reason, right? They've had good results. Yeah, I mean, Nikki, that's a great point and a really important one. And I, so you, like you say, all of these superstar investors do seem to have that focus and specialism in common. And sometimes there was a bit of fortune in there. So the corner they had structurally chosen to specialise in enjoyed a period in the sun for whatever reason. With Warren Buffett, surely the most famous investor of our times, I guess, his amazing returns over the course of his life to date, or certainly his, you know, during Berkshire Hathaway times, can be explained uh, by a combination of factors. First, a focus on a couple of these subsets of stocks stock markets that have done really well, like you say, but also actually leverage has been important. So there was an interesting paper just looking at this and basically funding his team's investments in various companies, essentially through using the premiums from the insurance arm of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, at least in part jacked up his risk adjusted returns significantly, according to this very famous uh, paper. Now, this is not to demean, uh, you know, the Oracle of Omaha in any way. He is a legend. However, the skill here is probably less about exploiting inefficient markets for a period of decades and more about sticking to a particular area, riding out the inevitable fallow periods and using the kind of leverage that's simply not available to you and I, sadly. But those fallow periods are common to all these superstars, focusing on one corner or other of the of the market uh, or factor, to use the technical parlance. But certain economic, political and regulatory environments suit one factor over another. So value, so stocks with a low price relative to their fundamental value, have been out of fashion for a decade or so. Some say low interest rates explain some of this, uh, with plenty of other theories in there as well. Now, this is why we invest across styles. We like using the superstars to do our stock and bond picking for us. And we devote, as you know, a lot of time and energy to finding them. Not the superstars of the last decade, but the ones of the next. However, 
we want as much as possible to avoid the fallow periods that inevitably come from focusing on one style or other, quality, growth, value, income, whatever. So we blend to try, we blend them together to try and create more all weather returns. Now, remember, the reason we outsource the stock and individual bond picking to the superstars of tomorrow is in deference to the idea that markets are efficient at incorporating new information. All we know, fear and hope about the future is reasonably accurately incorporated into price and reflected in prices. You just cannot sustainably generate the excess returns, the returns over and above the benchmark, whether the FTSE, the S&P as a subset of these indices or a subset of these indices without full-time focused professionals, in our opinion. So instead of picking the stocks ourselves, we mostly devote our energies to finding those superstar managers, some of which you, you, you described. But like I say, not the ones of yesteryear, the ones of tomorrow. Okay, that makes sense. So I guess so my next question is is a bit of a, a lead on from that, because I think you see disgust in certainly in financial press, but a lot of concern about are we entering a world of much lower returns? So everyone will know we've seen one of the three great bull markets of the post-war period in our rear view mirror. So trying to look forward. Profit margins are, are, are pretty high. Interest rates are at all-time lows and, and valuations are high. So it's not feeling like a great starting point for the next decade, say. And the industry is typically trying to sort of forewarn that, that lower returns lie ahead. But what do you, what do you say? What, what, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, we, we wrote about it a bit last week. So there's an article on LinkedIn for those interested, it's called Darker Times Ahead or something like that, I think. And there's a picture of my son in a Darth Vader mask, as usual. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I mean, it, it, to be honest, I mean, I remember well when the, the industry, right at the beginning of the last bull market, was calling for for lower returns ahead. It was 2009-10, and this was the reflexive pessimism of doomsayer community. You'd only just been sort of, you know, or a, a soothsayer community. You'd only just proved their lack of prescience by failing to predict the great financial crisis. And so now they were trying to predict more. But now it is a bit more plausible. I agree. But I mean, I think while that should be your baseline, and we still think that baseline is inflation beating returns, to be honest, but there are still a broad range of potential outcomes around that base assumption. As with the inflation outlook, we've talked a lot about the burgeoning potential for industrial revolution in the years ahead. Uh, and that represents, to me at least, a sufficiently alluring and plausible upside, upside case for those investors worrying about um, you know, lower returns than we've seen in the past. I would also argue that the return to diversified, if the returns to diversified market exposure are lower, that it is even more important to have that excess return potential. We talk about tactical asset allocation, where we try and adjust the, the weights in the asset classes, uh, at the asset class level to try and add a bit of return. The manager selection process, we've just been talking about, that's also designed to add little bits of extra return. Now, an extra one to two percentage points of return from so-called alpha per annum, if that can be achieved, is potentially a lot more important if that SAA, that core market exposure, is returning 2% inflation adjusted per annum versus 10%. So, you know, there are ways around this. And I don't, I don't think it's worth getting too gloomy. We never know what the future holds. But I think it's, it's, it's wise to expect lower returns from this point, given the starting point. And you know, let's remember, it's been double digit a year, right? So, and finally, just coming to the other two areas that, that caught my eye this week. So the debt ceiling, I mentioned earlier about miracle pills. We'll come back to that in a minute. So with, with the debt ceiling, could this time be different? 
Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, we seem to have kicked the can literally just before, just 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 before we started talking. They they seem to have kicked the can down the road thanks to a sort of Republican offer just down to December. But at the heart of this issue remains a very divided Congress. So in the past, debt ceilings have been raised or suspended with both Democrats and Republicans doing their bit. Finding agreement this time has been proved harder so far. Now, I mean, it would be pretty serious if agreement isn't eventually reached, you know, when we get to that December deadline. Effectively, the US government would immediately have to match inflows with outflows, so to speak, meaning a pretty immediate cut to spending in the region of kind of 250 billion or more per month, according to our colleagues at the investment bank. So let us keep our fingers crossed that it doesn't get to that. And we do sort of tend to see that the cost of this potential does seem to force um, you know last minute deals but we are dealing with a a, a more difficult congressional backdrop that's no doubt so other people people are taking this seemingly a bit more seriously this time around okay and and last but not least the the miracle covid pill i saw the market response was was actually that the vaccine makers like pfizer and and such like were sold off by investors so i guess the worry there is that vaccine uptake might slow down if the population thought there was a, an easier solution on its way. Yes, I think that's a bit of a pessimistic take, isn't it, from yeah. the market anyway. But I think this is Merck's new oral antiviral pill, and forgive my pronunciation, I think it's called Molnupiravir. It basically stops the virus replicating effectively, or it's meant to at least. Now, the published study shows a reduction in hospitalisation of uh, you know up to 50%. Now, in the US, I'm not sure how much scope there is for this to change the path of vaccine uptake or meaningfully change the path of vaccine uptake. In truth, uh, you are seeing proliferating vaccine mandates, which actually so far have not been met with massive resistance so far, like I say. But vaccines are still, you know, according to the expert, this is still, you know, it's still vaccines that are the ones that are, you know, the preventative stuff that's going to get us out of this crisis. I mean, the thing for me is that that's still amazing is that this new messenger RNA technology allows for such rapid updates, you know, even if a new and more dangerous uh, variant crops up from the Delta strain, it's approximately two months to do the update and start shipping it out. So these are the path out of the crisis. But certainly it does show that with time, the amazing technological context we're dealing in with regards to healthcare and the advances here are allowing us a you know a much greater arsenal of defenses versus our predecessors and ancestors in there when they faced their pandemics. Yeah, I mean the innovation is is incredible and mm. thank goodness for that. So well thank you. We did go everywhere. It feels like <laughs> take a sip from a fire hydrant. So I, I hope people aren't feeling too doused, but we'll focus on on one topic next week, which is to look at the potential for a winter of discontent. So let's let's hope not, but that's what we're going to talk about with a panel of experts. So thanks very much, Will. And thanks to our listeners and subscribers for joining us. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.